This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Donald and the Dunce Cap. A reminder to the church of what really matters. Now, I... I said this, when Barack Obama was president, one of the things I would teach is that if he showed up here, even though many of his laws, many of his, uh, let's say his ideology that he presented during his two terms in office was very much opposed to what I would represent and what we are doing here. Nonetheless, as our president, we should show him honor and respect. Just simple rule of thumb. We as Christians, I mean, you might have some parents that aren't the healthiest, and guess what? I would still say you show them honor. And so honor is just a basic package for us as Christians. And so when I say the Donald, I don't want you to even think that I'm inferring either some close fellowship that I have with this man known as our president or that I'm making fun of him. It's a term uh, that I'm using to sort of help you understand that the Donald is something that would be mocked. And it's interesting. You know, this guy's hairdo is something that back in the day when I first, when it was our third book, When God Is Your Love Story, the one we're probably most known for, in it I had, I was trying to create a metaphor and so I used uh, James Dobson's glasses. That was what I did back in the book. And the, and the publisher was like, no, no, we don't want to mess with James Dobson. And this is back in 97, 98. And so I said, well, it's funny. I think he would like it. But okay. So I ended up using Donald Trump's hairdo. So I think still to this day, that's still in a book. I might want to think about removing that. This is sort of scary. Uh, I think in the president of the United States, is, his hairdo is made fun of by me. And so I want to always show a deference and a respect, and I want that to emanate forward from me. I don't want snickering about leadership, even about parents. I want us to honor those that aren't in the room, if that makes sense. And that includes the people that would oppose us. It doesn't mean that we agree with their ideology or that we don't bring up their name to say, and what this person said is not true. However, the way we treat them is still the way a Christian would treat someone. Because how does Jesus treat us? Or how did he treat you before you came to him? And that's very, very important in light of what we're going to talk about today. And so we're mixing two things together, which will make more sense as we progress. But the Donald and the Dunce Cap, and I could have had a more full name, and it could have been the Donald, the Dunce Cap, and the dangerous cliff that is up ahead. Because we are being set up as Christians right now. And I'm not saying by the Donald. And when you understand what a dunce cap is, you'll have a fuller appreciation for even what I mean here. But there is a dangerous bait that is in front of the evangelical community uh, in North America. And I want us to be aware of it, and I want it to not hinder our forward progression of living fully for Jesus Christ. A reminder to the church of what really matters. Our culture's true colors. In these past months, we live in a very historic season in American history right now. Some of you that 
uh, haven't lived through a tremendous amount of American history don't recognize how significant some of the things that are taking place are. Uh, we are about as close to a civil war in this country probably as we've ever, ever have been since the Civil War. But <clears throat> some of the things that are happening are very different than in the Civil War era. A Judeo-Christian worldview was accepted on both sides of the line uh, of the Civil War. However, nowadays, it's an ideological line. And so it's not a line of territory, it's a line of ideology or thought or philosophy, the way we approach life. And there are certain thoughts that are reigning in our culture that are very opposed to what a Christian should be thinking in their head, which would cause us to make a choice, either go underground with our beliefs and say, Woo, well, I might believe it, but I'm not about to say it. And the other option is to change our beliefs slightly to fit in better, both of which cripple Christianity. So option A and B stink. Mysterious option number C, which is just be a Christian, is a wonderful option. Circle it right now in your mind. Our culture is showing something right now. As long as the ones that are making decisions in our country showcase a political correctness, showcase that they are in alignment with something that is actually anti-Christian and in a direction away from the word of God and even the existence of God altogether, everyone's fine. Everyone's happy. But the moment we begin to steer this in a direction that would alter from that course of anti-godness, we have an eruption. We have chaos. We have riots, whether they be fake or not. We have all sorts of things taking place in our culture. Now, if you're, say, if you're looking back at me going, Eric, I have no idea what you're talking about. Who is Donald anyways? Praise God. In many regards, you're better off uh, because, and I'm not saying that in the truest sense because I do want you to be aware of the world in which you're in, but at a secondary level, there are certain disputes that are bait for Christians right now, and we need to know how to rightly handle them so that we don't put our foot into the snare the enemy is setting out for us. The seven-year-old and the swastika. So there's this little seven-year-old as it came out in the news uh, that wore a uh, build the wall uh, t-shirt, that's a uh, Donald Trump slogan, uh, to school, and his teacher uh, confronted him, was very upset with it, and said, how would you feel if someone was wearing a swastika on their t-shirt? You're, you shouldn't be wearing things like that. And so when that which ideologically may mesh better with conservative Christianity is now considered the equivalent of a swastika, you can begin to understand the extreme differentiation between two sides. In other words, it's not just a subtle disagreement that says, you know, well, what you believe as Christians is, you know, not what I like. That's one thing. We can agree to disagree. But when you begin to liken it to something Hitler did, and what Christianity represents is that dangerous to culture, in their mind, you have danger looming on the horizon. 2 Timothy, Paul is uh, speaking to Timothy. He's giving a framework of how, in a sense, to lead as a pastor. And so these are pastoral letters to Timothy to basically train him, to equip him, to effectively minister to a body. And so he's also giving an understanding for Timothy of the times in which he lived. Okay, and ironically, this can transcend throughout the ages because many of us say, have those times come? Well, these times come, and they come again. And yes, there probably is a time when it's capital T time, but there's also times, and we are in such a time. 
But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. If, you were to, if we were to break down the list, this, this message isn't necessarily just going through each of the list and then saying, aha, and showing, pointing at our, our culture. It probably wouldn't be very difficult for you to just look at that list and say, hmm, sounds like me. In other words, we have a propensity in this culture. This is, in a sense, what we are being groomed for outside of the influence of the Holy Spirit. Right now, unless the truth of Jesus Christ changes our culture, this is how people are turning out. Not because they're coming out of the womb going, you know what, I would like to be like that. They just are like that. And because of the conditioning of our culture, it's sponsoring this behavior. And so what we see is the results of a culture that is turned away from God. The results are quite dramatic. In early American history, not everyone was a Christian, but everyone still had a biblical worldview, whether they knew it or not. Now, in our modern day, you can, you can say not everyone is Christian. Yes, that's definitely true. But what's interesting is we could also say not everyone is just secular and anti-God. However, the way we're groomed is to still think politically correct. And so as a result, we still are leaning in our ideology away from biblical Christianity. And when you read certain scriptures, you wince and you go, God, whoa, are you serious? You actually think I should take that and apply it today? How would I do that? Because we have an instinctive understanding that something is wrong with what the Bible's saying. Now, because it goes against our conditioning in this culture. 54 genders? Let me ask you a simple question. If, if, uh, if a child in here knew what a gender was, I could say, how many genders are there? And they'd say, two. And they would be correct. There are men and there are women. I know, one of the most profound things I've probably ever said from this stage. Do you need me to repeat it if any of you are writing things down? God created the male and female. He only made two. However, it is now being postulated that there are 54 genders. Yeah, you thought there was just three or four. You know, we got some mixes going on here. 54! Okay, can you say insanity? Yes, I'm sure you can. This is, that was a rhetorical question. In other words, we've lost screws. Things are coming loose to the point where that which is normal is very abnormal to even a little child. The emperor's walking down the street without any clothes on, and everyone's like, yay, great outfit. And it's a little child that says, <clears throat> Mommy, why does the emperor not have any clothes on? You see, everyone has to see this, don't they? How ridiculous and ludicrous this is. We're coming unhinged, and yet very few of us in this room know what to do about it, because to say anything against it is to be treated the way the Donald is being treated right now to say anything. We can just watch. You don't have to be that smart to realize just keep your mouth shut. Don't you dare go in that direction. That guy is going to be crucified and soon you can feel it. 54 genders. You've heard of a man referring to himself as a woman. Yes, very strange. But you've probably heard of it. You've heard of a woman referring to herself as a man. Mm -hmm. Rather strange. But you've heard of it. But have you heard of a man or a woman that refuses to identify with being either a man or a woman? 
Well, that's confusing. I mean, the first two are really weird. But now we're getting into even stranger territory. So brace yourselves. Have you heard of the lady who wants to be classified as trans-species? Half giraffe, half person. Uh-huh. Uh, have you heard of the lady who wants the classification of half cat, half person? Now, who are you to tell me that I'm not half cat? I know inside that I'm half cat. Well, you're not. You're, you're not half cat. <laughs> but for me to say that is so intolerant. I mean, come on. Have you heard of the older man who classifies himself as a five-year-old little girl? Mm-hmm. Now that's, I, I don't know which is the most disturbing, but let's just classify it all as very disturbing. God created us male and female. The ideology in our culture, the thoughts in our culture have gone so far away from truth to the point where deception and lie reigns and it even feels bad for us to call that, which is so obviously a lie, to this poor person who is acting as a five-year-old little girl, though he's an older man, to say, sir, I love you too much to allow you to live in this delusion. Instead, everyone surrounds him and celebrates says, let him be. This is the way he is. We celebrate this. We celebrate that he has found himself, that he knows who he is. He's lost. And we know it. But how do we deal with it? Second Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now what I'm doing, I was preparing our congregation for quite a long time for and you'll find this out even in this semester, for difficulty. I want us as Christians to recognize we're in the midst of a battle. However, in the midst of what has taken place since Super Tuesday in November, there is this weird sense in and amongst Christians that maybe everything has passed by. Maybe this culture is actually headed in a different direction. Maybe. Maybe we don't need to be on our knees praying. Maybe we don't need to be Understand that it, it leads to suffering to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ. Maybe. You follow me? Right now, all we're seeing is true colors coming out and how intense this battle actually is. You see, the battle hasn't gone away. The enemy didn't give up. He has us in the bullseye right now. And if you don't recognize that such a time that we live is a time to be a Christian, this is our privilege. I mean, if you could pick any time in history and you had every option, you had a little pin and you go gook and stick it on the chronological timetable and say, God, could I have 2017 in America? And God smiles and goes, I like how you think. And we go gook and we stick it on the timeline. This is the time to be alive right now. It's challenging. I mean, what kind of movie? Could you imagine a movie where there's no tension, no conflict? How boring is that? Okay, you stick a background score behind a guy walking down the street. He's like, you know, it's sort of a dull movie. That's right. You don't want to just have a life where you walk down the street. You want a life 
where there's something that is standing against you and you overcome. I mean, that's what makes every good story. Don't you want to have a good story? Well, you have a great opportunity for it right now. Because people are turning away from sound doctrine to the point where when you stand and you speak it, they can't hear it. They actually look at you as, oh, you're one of those. Believe me, I run into this a lot. It's almost one of those things. I don't know if I should take a different tact. I do, because I have three different job descriptions. I am a president of a college, right? I'm a pastor of a church, and I'm an author. Depending on the situation, I can be very wise in what I choose to bring out. Because there's certain people, once they find out I'm a pastor, barrier. Oh, I'm one of those. Right? It's really interesting how that functions. You, you wear it on your sleeve that you're a Christian. You've lost a good portion of your audience that's going to listen to you. But at the same time, that's what we do. We wear it on our sleeve. We're Christians. Yeah, I, you know, the Christian has always been a slur word. It's never a compliment, by the way, even when it was first invented back in the day. It's always been a slur, and I'm willing to stand with it, and I'm willing to side with all those funny Christians out there and say, yep, I'm a Christian. Outrage. So I'm going to define it for you. The noun version of outrage is an extremely strong reaction of anger, shock, or indignation. Synonyms, indignation, fury, anger, rage, disapproval, wrath, resentment. I'm going to give you the verb. You were outraged. I am so outraged. Arouse fierce anger, shock, or indignation in someone. Synonyms, enrage infuriate, incense, anger, scandalize, offend, give offense to, affront, shock, horrify, disgust, appall. There are things that our president has done in the past uh, few weeks that have outraged a nation. This is the response of many people in our nation. Now here's what's interesting, because some of you, in seeing the outrage of so many people in our nation, have done what? You have been outraged. Isn't that interesting? You see, this is the bait. The bait is to turn you away from functioning as Christians, to being defensive, to entering into the enemy's game, which is a game of outrage. Outrage is dangerous devil business. We as Christians don't hang out in the realm of outrage. That isn't how we function. The wrath of man, I could say the outrage of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. Simply put, the book of James, this is one of the key themes in it, is the issues of rage and wrath being misappropriated inside of a Christian to say that person's religion is false. In other words, if they are marked by anger and fury, their religion is false. It's a, a weird statement. And yet the bait for us in the midst of this when Obama delivered the goods and certain things took place in those eight years that massively undermined the biblical Christian heritage that we had in this country. And many of us were outraged. And yet, it's interesting. I don't know how many of you went out and rioted and threw rocks through windows. You see, we were tempered in our outrage. However, we were still baited. Instead of recognizing that, you know what? This is a time in which we live, and my job is not to try and say I need to have a president that fears God, or the Congress that votes and legislates morality, but that I personally 
must shine the light of Jesus. The most simple enunciation of Christianity is it starts with you. In any situation, and when outrageous things take place in the culture around us, and a woman says that she is half giraffe, that even though it is preposterous, that you do not give in to making her the enemy. That is the bait. There are people right now that if they found out what you believed, would be outraged towards you. But your response towards them is not the same. You respond in an opposite spirit. You respond loving them with mercy and kindness. And this is why I'm saying there is a bait woven into what is taking place around us right now. Social outrage is the soil for social prejudice. You see, labels come out of outrage. Extreme labels. And so I've been called probably everything Donald Trump has been called. So I'm actually familiar. I have a heart for the guy. Uh, just as I see what is happening to him, it's like, huh, that feels familiar. All I've done is stand for something, and people just do not like that. They do not like someone standing for something opposite of what they believe. And I, I can understand that. I'm not necessarily cheering on people to stand for something that I don't believe. At the same time, our job is to be Christians in the midst of it. When you allow even the conservative media to start to talk about the liberal media as a group, to talk about those people out there that are rioting and picketing, what do you do? You have a tendency to group them and lump them in your mind in, and label them as idiots. And then what happens when you run into one of them? Oh, you're one of those. And instead of treating them the way Jesus would treat them, you treat them as the problem. The very way they are treating us. That is where it needs to stop. They may treat us the wrong way. Guess what the Bible says? They will. We know it. We're Christians. We know how we'll be treated. Our job is to not treat them in the same manner, but to treat them the way Jesus treated us. Introducing John Dunce. I know it looks like Duns, but it's Dunce. It sounds fairly similar, doesn't it, to Dunce Cap? Huh? This is where it comes from. John Dunce. So I took a little excerpt from my book, The Bold Return of the Dunces. I'm a big fan of Dunces, by the way. And I know it sounds like a strange thing to be a fan of, but you will be too after we progress here. The tall, pointy Dunce Cap has been a symbol of shame for centuries. To be the schoolboy stuck in the proverbial corner with the idiot's hat pressed down on his head is second in shame only to the idea of being paraded through the school hallways in one's underwear. As a result, the word dunce and the concept of abject humiliation have always been closely associated. And for those of us that are walking thesauruses, we are well aware that the word dunce has been conjoined to words like fool, stupid, idiot, dullard, and dolt for time immemorial. Rule number one of the social classroom states, don't be the dunce. It's a simple rule and one that the typical student is able to grasp without much arm twisting. For the consequences of ignoring its valuable lesson is an embarrassment and humiliation too much for most dignified souls to endure. Ironically, this very unattractive and shame-laden word, dunce, was derived from an intriguing Scotsman who lived back in the late 13th, early 14th century. His name was John Dunce, often known in history as Dunce Scotus. And if you pronounce his surname, Dunce, properly you would find that it sounds just like our word dunce. That's because it is the same word. John Dunce Scotus 
has been inextricably tied to the idea of recalcitrant, shame-faced idiocy for hundreds of years. I run a Bible college named, called Ellerslie. Interestingly, Ellerslie is a Scottish name. It's named after the birthplace of another notable Scot, William Wallace. These two men, Wallace and Dunce, were born a mere four years apart and 20 miles away from each other. So it seems that whether I want it or not, being named Ellerslie brings me uncomfortably close to the front door of another Scot with a less attractive name. As a result, I feel somewhat of a providential kinship with this unfortunate Dunce from 700 years ago. Though Dunce's name is forever tied to the idea of the thick-skulled dolt, history attests to the fact that John Dunce was actually, brace yourselves for this, a brilliant man. In fact, the word brilliant would be a vast understatement. Many in his generation considered him the world's most intelligent man while he was alive. And many scholars throughout history would attest to the fact that he was likely one of the most astute and developed minds throughout the entire thousand-year epoch known to us as the Middle Ages. This begs an important and obvious question. How did a man noted for such brilliance go down in history as such an imbecile? So, John Dunce is actually in history considered one of the most brilliant men. But, what in the world caused everything to change? I don't know if I, yeah, I didn't. All right, so, this man actually wore a hat. And it was cone-shaped. And it pointed up like a finger. It was like this. It sort of was a, a decided finger pointing upward. And you know what that hat meant to John Dunce? It was a statement and a symbol that he wore to declare where all true knowledge and intelligence came from. It came from one singular place known as Jesus Christ. He called it the primacy of Christ. This was at the base and the root of all his learning, all his knowledge, and all his teaching. Isn't that interesting? That cone-shaped hat was a decided statement to the culture in which he lived of where all intellect truly stemmed from. It stemmed from the one who created it all. Jesus Christ was his name. Ah, you know what? I like this guy. Well, as time passes, even for two to three hundred years after John Dunce, he was revered as truly one of the greatest minds of all history. So, I mean, you could be 200, 300 years beyond that man's death, and he's still esteemed. Isn't that an amazing statement? So how did things go wrong? Well, he still had some followers. They were known as the Dunces, and they wore hats. Uh, and so you can feel the awkwardness of that. I don't know how many of you are interested in whipping out a hat like that and walking around town. But these guys had hats, and it's right at the time of the Renaissance, where mankind uh, at the time decided it got brilliant. So men became really smart all of a sudden. And they decided that God was keeping information from them. You know what uh, the, Satan said or the, or the serpent said in the Garden of Eden? God's not telling you everything. He doesn't want you to know that if you eat of this fruit, you will know things and you can be as God. Think about that. What was God accused of by the serpent? Withholding knowledge. And so what did Eve do? She wanted her eyes opened. She wanted to be enlightened. And she ate of the fruit. This is the exact era known as the Enlightenment era. God was kicked out of academics and man was set in charge. Man's mind was exalted. And as a result, we have what now becomes the destruction of dunces, the great threat 
to all knowledge and learning in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment eras was the dunce. Anyone who would try and bring us back to the Middle Ages and get our focus on a man named Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that sound like modern America? What in the world? Yeah, this is history. You see, the enemy has always been after one thing, and that is to stick a dunce cap on the Christians, to stick them in the corner and call them the idiots. You see, you guys have no clue The rest of the world is enlightened. We're going somewhere. Meanwhile, you guys are stuck in the past, living out this old-fashioned way of living and thinking. Christianity is old, I must admit it, but it's truth. And truth doesn't change, just like our God, who is always the same. You see, as Christians, we need to recognize our foundation. We build upon a rock, and when winds and rains beat against our house, we're not going anywhere. Because we're fixed upon something that doesn't change or alter or move. It's called truth. What defines this church body? So just pause for a second. Now, I know that some of you are like, well, I don't, I'm not really a part of this church. Well, if you're a believer, you are. We're the church. Whether or not you're a member of a specific church known as the church at Ellerslie, that's not what I'm talking about right now. What defines us? So just imagine that you're a little church building, just you, okay? What defines you? What, what are you known for? What, what, what hallmarks you? If, someone, if, if a whole group of people that knew you came up onto the stage and they said, so tell us, what's the one thing that stands out about this person? What would be the conclusion, the conclusive statement? If it was your funeral, what would they say? What defined your life? Well, what should define the church? Now, this is a gathering. Even though we are a blended body, and we come from varying heritage, heritages, and we have varying perspectives on certain doctrines. This is the interesting thing. We still all are holding to very similar platforms, and that is that Jesus Christ is God, and that the Word of God is true. You see, that, that's, a, that's a big standing point right there. So we might come from different vantage points, but there are certain things that bind us together. And so, What defines this church body? Is it that we pray? It's like, oh, that was a praying man. Is it the hours a day that we pray? Did you know that that guy prayed three hours a day? Is it that we confess? We're willing to speak truth. We're willing to stand with Christ. Is it the number of new converts we have weekly? That guy leads people to Jesus all the time. Is it that we are a generous people? By the way, everything I'm reading is wonderful. Okay, so don't think I'm criticizing anything. I'm just asking questions. Is it the amount we give to the kingdom of heaven? That guy is so generous. Is it that we serve? Is it the challenging and trying ways in which we serve? Is it our morality? Is it our ethical rightness? Is it our purity prior to marriage? Each of these things could be things that you could be known for. You've taken a stand on that and said, hey, we're going to make this an issue. This is what I want to be known for. They're all good things. The qualities of Christ. Is it the manliness of our men? Is it our boldness to preach and listen to the hard things? Because there's people that can come to this church and go, yeah, we preach the gospel here. We don't mince words. Yeah, and I'm willing to sit through it every Sunday. I hear it. I listen to it. What? Is that your reputation? Is it the feminine grace of our women? Is it our doctrinal excellence? Is it our theological brilliance? Some of you are like, yeah, that's it. That's it. Is it our loud preaching? And some of you are like, scratch that. Yeah, it's the loud preaching. Is it our long sermons? Okay, scratch the first two. Let's go with that one. 
Is it our missions mindedness? Is it our large families? If you have less than 10 kids in here, you stink. <laughs> I, that was a joke, by the way. You guys aren't familiar with my humor yet. Some of you are like, oh. <laughs> is it our passion for adoption? Is it our percentage of homeschoolers? Is it the obedience of our children and their ability to sit still during a sermon? Is it our dutiful attendance on Tuesday nights? Is it our skill in discipleship? What defines us? All of those things would be great. Could you imagine if someone said, let me tell you the things I love about the church at Ellerslie. And they were to go through that list. I mean, hey, we're beaming. That's some good stuff. But is that what we're known for? What is it that defines us? Simply put, as Christians, we can't be notated and identified with sub-issues if we miss the priority. We love Jesus Christ so much. We are all about Jesus. Everything we do points to Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the center. We make him the center. We study him, pursue him, worship him, seek to know him more, exalt him, share him, discuss him, and we make him known. All the other things are the things that help us do it. But why are we doing those things? You know, you could be pure before marriage and go to hell. Did I just say that? I've written like 12 books on that topic. That isn't what saves you. Moral uprightness isn't your key to heaven. Jesus is. So as a result, we could do it all right and miss the door. We're not going to miss the door. As a body, we want to know Jesus. Even if we're sort of fumbling in the other areas, I'm not going to teach you how to fumble in the other areas, but I'm saying even if you fumbled in the other areas, if you know Jesus, you got the center. That's what matters, and that's what's going to straighten out the other areas. If you know Jesus, you'll become a great man, if you're a man. If you know Jesus, you'll become a great woman, if you're a woman. I do need to clarify that in this particular message. Jesus, with an exclamation mark, he's the purpose statement of this church. That's the purpose statement. Jesus, you need to know Jesus. I need to know Jesus more. I want to communicate Jesus. So when we're dealing with all these issues, remember, there's going to be a bait to get off center. There's going to be a bait to be identified with something other than Jesus. Our new list. So now I have a, another list to say, what are we known for? And this is going to hit a little closer to home based on what we're dealing with in our country right at this exact moment. Now, this list will be dated probably next week. So anyone listening to this message you're like five years from now, we're like, whoa, that's an old message. Because these issues are current events. However, watch the pull that they have upon us. What defines this church? Is it that we believe in immigration reform? Is it that we think the Keystone Pipeline is a great idea? Is it that we think building a wall on the border of Mexico is grand thinking? Is it that we believe extreme vetting is necessary today for at least seven countries in this world? Is it that we believe that Neil Gorsuch should be quickly approved by Congress as the next Supreme Court justice? Is it that we believe the mainstream media outlets of our day are liberally biased and spewing out fake news? Even as I say this, some of you are like, yeah, they sure are, I can't believe that. Is it that we think that all these noisy naysayers that want Trump ousted are just plain idiots? See, you felt it probably. This is ridiculous. Mind your own business. You guys had eight years. Now give the evangelical church some time. We haven't had a law in our favor for decades. I don't even know how to handle this. I just want to party all day. 
we have to be extremely watchful of our souls in this exact time. What is it that defines us? We love Jesus Christ so much. In the midst of this, it's not to side with conservative politics. Even though those conservative politics may be more in line with biblical thinking and living and may have the healthiest effect upon this culture, that is still not the hill we die on. Do not lose sight of the hill called Calvary. Do not lose sight of what matters most. Even if a wall is never built, if you can gain a soul, you've gained something. A wall will fade. A soul will last forever. We need to remember what matters most. And we have a whole bunch of people that we could end up on one side of a civil war against. And the scriptures will have to somehow break through and say, your battle is not against flesh and blood. You see, there's principalities and powers that are controlling people, and we have the gospel to see them set free. But to do that, you can't make your emblem a political position. You must make your emblem Jesus Christ. doesn't mean you don't have a political position. It just means what you wear is Jesus. We love Jesus Christ so much. We're all about Jesus. Everything we do points to Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the center. We make him the center. We study him, pursue him, worship him, seek to know him more, exalt him, share him, discuss him, and make him known. There is a clear and present danger for the church in America. Isn't that a funny statement? It's like Eric's always going to drudge up some danger that we have because otherwise he wouldn't have a job. I mean, well, what's Eric Ludi if he doesn't have something to prepare the church for? That's an interesting question. This is the time we need to be preparing the church, right now. Are you thinking of putting your hope and faith in, in a man? I hope not. What if Trump is taken out? What if he's removed? We have to be the church. That's our job. Our job is not to put hope in any system of this earth, even if it begins to head in a healthy direction. We are pilgrims passing through, and this is not our home. While we are here, we will be great citizens. While we are here, we will cheer on that which we can to better the world around us. Sure. Just like I'm going to pick up trash in my house. I want to live in a nice environment. I'm going to pick up trash in this world every day that I can. But my salvation doesn't come in a good deed. It comes in faith in Jesus Christ, and so does theirs. And you can't allow the enemy to turn you against the people in this country. They are loved by Jesus Christ and he shed his blood for them. Do not forsake them in this time. Do not become hostile and outraged against a people that God has already pre-told you that they will be against you. But you are still to pursue them even if it means your own death. The current bait for the Bible-believing Christian. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. Well, how would the elect get dragged into that? I mean, come on, isn't it obvious when there's a false solution to our problem? Isn't it obvious when there's a false Messiah? You see, most of us are expecting some guy to walk out and go, I'm the Messiah, forget Jesus, follow me. We're like, well, I'm not going to fall for that. You see, what this is, is it's a false message of hope. It's a false deliverer for your life. Now, by the way, I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump is doing anything wrong. 
I'm saying that we as the church and how we appropriate a man in the presidency is very, very important. Our hope is not in any man. It's in the redeemer of mankind. So there will be false Christs and false prophets who will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I've, when asked if I was a Calvinist, you know, which is a common question I get these days, uh, actually, I haven't been asked that for quite some time ever since I gave the message The Simplitist, which didn't go over too well with a lot of people. Let me just say it that way. I was, I, I, Paul Washer answered the question. He was asked if you're a Calvinist. And he says, I'm a five-point Spurgeonist. Yeah, I like that. So then I came out and I said, I'm a five-point stud after C.T. Stud. First of all, I like the sound of it. <laughs> then I gave my five points as Jesus, 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 and Jesus. Well, not everyone caught the humor in it, and uh, Eric went through quite a, a, a bashing after that. But a simplitist, that's what I called myself. I'm not a Calvinist, I'm not an Arminius, I'm a simplitist. I'm someone who simply keeps his gaze focused on the Savior, Jesus Christ, and I feel like that solves all soteriological issues. Now, you'll understand more of what I mean by that. It's not to discount scriptures in the Bible that are hinting towards soteriological viewpoints. It's just that, hey, I know who saves, and it's not five points of Calvinism. It's Jesus. And so therefore, I'm not going to miss that in studying this. Let's make sure we keep the center intact. So the simplitus, this is where it comes from, 2 Corinthians. But I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So what I want to do is I want to lift out that word simplicity. Paul uses this word it's around five times in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's almost used, I think it's like used one more time in the entire New Testament, okay? So in other words, it's hardly ever used, but Paul uses this word in the book of 2 Corinthians. Simplicity. It comes from the word haplus, and this isn't the word simplicity, this is the, the root of it, etymologically. So it means, in the Greek, able to see clearly, singular in focus. And the, the concept would be without blurriness, without cloud, without confusion. In other words, if you have bad eyesight and you don't have your glasses on, then you need glasses. And what the glasses bring are haplus. In other words, they bring clarity to a situation. They bring the ability to focus on something. So this is our root for the idea of simplicity. Haplotes is our word that is translated as simplicity. It's also translated in various other ways in 2 Corinthians. It's a unique word that's hard for us to get a quick and easy definition for. But this is what it means. Focused on one thing, of singular aim, without pretense, without false motive, leading to great self-sacrifice. So the word is translated as singularity of focus or simplicity. That's actually what simplicity means. To us, simplicity means sort of simple-brained and an idiot. That's what's funny. So when I called myself a simplitist, people were like, yeah, you better believe it, you are. And I'm like, well, I'll take that as a compliment, I think. In other words, it's one that has a singularity of focus on what? Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Lest the devil beguile you, lest he get you off track and cloud your understanding and move you away from a singularity of focus on the one thing known as Jesus Christ. So haplotes also is understood as extreme sacrificial giving. Isn't that an odd combination? Singularity of focus and extreme sacrificial giving. What it seems to be is a word that means when you see that one thing, 
it leads to an extreme givenness to that one thing. It's a, it's a givenness of all. And that's our key word. For our boasting, so this is in the very beginning of the letter to the Corinthians. For our boasting is this, says Paul, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in haplotes. How did we, says Paul, conduct ourselves in this world? We conducted ourselves with a singularity of focus and an extreme givenness of sacrificial lending liberality unto those around us. And godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. So this seems to be, to Paul, the defining attribute of how he carried himself in this world. This is our testimony, guys. We were among this world with aplotes and godly sincerity. We meant what we said. When we came to someone that disagreed with us, we came to them with one message, one thing to share, Jesus Christ. And this led to us giving out our life with godly sincerity. They recognized our love. We meant it. We truly care about these souls. Speaking of the churches at Macedonia, I, I put that in, by the way. That's not in the scriptures. That's the context. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, meaning the, church, the joy of the churches at Macedonia, and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their haplotes. So, in other words, this church, the churches at Macedonia gave. They forfeited comforts to give unto the kingdom of heaven. And Paul is referencing that here with the same exact word. Their focus on the simplicity that is in Christ, the singularity of focus, seemed to lead to a haplotes, a givenness, a sacrificial, liberal giving unto the kingdom of heaven. You are enriched in everything for all in other words, you are being built up by the Holy Spirit. You are being enriched, made rich in your inner man. Why? So that you could stay focused on one thing and give your life with abandon unto the kingdom of heaven. Haplotes. What might distract us from center right now? Hmm. So I want you to just pause. Now maybe, because I'm using the political dimension of our world right now, which is making a lot of noise. It was a big deal. If you've been missing it all, like I said, you could praise God for that. But it is making a lot of noise. And so I want us to be very aware as Christians. What might distract us from center right now? Donald Trump. Now, that's a, that's a funny statement, but he could. In other words... He might go down in history as the greatest president from an evangelical Christian vantage point. We might say that, that man did more good for evangelical Christian liberty than any man before him. That, that could be the, the final solution, right? But there's a lot of great men that have lived through history. But we need to make sure that we do not transfer our faith and our confidence from Jesus Christ into what this man can do for us. Do you follow me on that? So here's our thoughts. This is the danger thoughts. He can fix the downward moral spiral in our country. No, he can't. Do you actually think that through laws made or executive orders, you can change the moral downward spiral of a nation? You know, there's only one thing that can change a moral downward spiral. Jesus. I know that's a shocker, isn't it? You know that we can, we, I think the amount of money that's been given to Haiti, I don't remember the exact number, some massive number, like 40 billion, okay? Where you could literally divide it up amongst all the inhabitants of Haiti and each one would have a million dollars. 
I mean, could you imagine that so much money has gone there and it's all gone, all completely gone, and the infrastructure of that country is no better? Where did that go? You can do the right thing, but if you don't bring it with the power of Jesus Christ, you will not change a nation. A nation that is set in a direction will not be changed by laws. It can only be changed by the inhabitation of Jesus Christ intervening in that world, changing their way, the way they think and live. It's a renewal of a mind, not just of an individual, but of a nation. We cannot expect Donald Trump to do that. Whereas in his role, just like his in my role, I can't change this nation either, and, but in my role there can be expectations, but don't put your faith in me. It's like, oh, Eric Ludy will preach it. I mean, at least we know he'll do it. Don't put your confidence in me. I can't do it either. He can fix the downward moral spiral in our country. He can stabilize our economy. He can protect us Christians from the agenda of the left, ISIS and the UN. Oh, good, at least we have a protector now. You've had a protector this whole time. Don't you know in whom you live? Don't you understand that he is your wall? That he is your barricade? You are fortified in Christ Jesus. That's part of what biblical discipleship is all about. You understanding that. That doesn't come from a wall along the border of Mexico and America. It comes from Jesus Christ. Does that mean a wall on the border of Mexico and America isn't a wise idea? I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that's not where we put our hope. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. So however, this is my commentary, however, whenever we put trust in man's leadership and ease in the focus of soul and blur, no matter how slightly, in the singularity of focus on the kingdom of heaven, becoming captivated with the intriguing activities of this fallen world, losing sight of the all-important activities of the Holy Spirit in this fallen world, we lose our haplotes. And that is the devil's business. You see, the, the devil wants you to lose your haplotes, your singularity of focus. This is his business. And so as a result, like for instance, many of you have come out for a semester here at Ellerslie, there's one thing I want you to learn in this semester, and that's haplotes. I want you to have a singularity of focus for these 12 weeks that you're on this campus on Jesus Christ. And you could say, what happens in the 13th week? Well, hopefully you've, hopefully you've learned that that's how you live the rest of your life. The devil wants to take your gaze away. Your job internally is to fix. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your gaze. Fix your mind. Fix your thoughts. Paul says, think on these things. And notice that none of them had to deal with the nomination of Neil Gorsuch. None of them. He says, that which is pure, that which is noble, that which is right. It does not mean that you are empty-brained in regard to Neil Gorsuch. It just means that it does not distract you from your meditations. You make sure that your life is aimed in a hearty fashion towards a singularity of focus on Jesus Christ. Number two, this is another bait for us that will get us off track. And I understand. Uh, it's a bait for me, I know. You'd think that I had this all figured out. It's just like, oh, I'm totally immune to the idiots out there. It's, right. it's so easy to get a label that comes out of our soul that begins to classify people as brainless. I mean, a giraffe? Meet human? Oh, come on. But you have to realize that exact sense of outrage and disgust that we might have towards something like that is precisely what the devil's breeding in them towards someone who lives for Jesus. You actually believe that stuff? Didn't you know the Bible is totally written by men. It's a total joke. It's been exposed scientifically. 
They have it all in their mind figured out that they borrowed some quote from someone. We're borrowing quotes from people too. And we hear media reports, and what's it doing? Stirs us up. What's it meant to do? Stir you up. And one of the best things we can do is just stay away from the media. I just don't trust those guys. They're, they're stirrers, pot stirrers. They want you to keep listening. They want you to keep watching. You know, if God came out with a newspaper, it'd be very boring comparatively. You know, and, uh, you know, Missy from Arkansas, you know, had a great prayer time this morning. And I'm just so pleased by that. Could you imagine? And we're like, well, that's, that's not very exciting. You see, what God is focused on isn't always what the media is focused on. The media wants to draw your attention. It wants fantastical. It wants to keep you listening and watching. That's how its business works. So it's going to take darkness and celebrate it. God takes light and celebrates it. So that's what we do. We're in the business of celebrating light, not darkness. After all, these guys are just plain irritating. They need to shut up. They're well-deserving of our disgust. However, whenever we turn off the spigot of God's grace, love, and mercy towards the lost and dying in this world, we immediately discard our haplotes, and we immediately lose our true purpose for being here on this earth. We are love-bearers, not just towards those that think like us, but also towards those that oppose us. Our Christian witness must not lose its love, its forgiveness, its joy amidst persecution, and it's a plotase in the most noisy of circumstances. This is our opportunity to live out true Christianity. That's very exciting. The Christian in 2017 America, what must define us? Haplotes ought to define us. I know that was quite a shocker at the end of this message. What should define us? Haplotes. Staying attuned and fully focused on the one man that we can and must always lean on. The one who will never leave us, forsake us, fail us, and who will undoubtedly deliver on all his promises. We serve a higher authority. We can respect and honor our earthly authority. We can even cheer on decisions that aim this country in the direction of health and purity and life and that help create an environment for the gospel to work. However, we also must know that even if someone is in that seat that is anti what we believe, that shouldn't change the way we live. We are Christians no matter if it's a favorable condition or an unfavorable. And you'll also notice if you look at history that unfavorable conditions oftentimes breed a stronger version of Christianity than favorable ones. I'm not saying that we pray for unfavorable conditions. I'm saying we recognize that we can thrive in either or. That's our job. Don't let the enemy take us off our game. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hey guys, I'm coming to you with a plotes. I'm very focused here. I'm focused on Jesus Christ. And I'm coming to you to give you one thing. So what else do we as Christians need in 2017 in America? Haplotes. I know. That's sort of strange. Didn't I already say that? There's two definitions of haplotes blended together. One is singularity of focus. The other is all-out givenness. Sacrificial givenness to the kingdom of heaven. You know that when these people irritate you and you begin to label them as nonsense, as idiots, 
then what you have a tendency to do is close off the heart. You see, there's a spigot inside. You know, it's one of those little faucet types of things for outdoor uh, hoses, spigot. You have a spigot inside of you, and God has poured in his love, his grace, and his mercy into you, and you have to be very watchful because a Christian has to be a flow-through. That means that love, that mercy, that grace, that patience, that gentleness comes out of us. What the enemy's game is, is to say, oh, 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 don't give them any of that. Whoa, turn that off. Those guys are idiots. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I have a hunch that we're idiots too. And if God turned off that spigot towards us, we wouldn't be doing so well. You see, we have a, we're living in a lost world and we even show some of the signs of that lostness in our daily lives. We're works in process. However, God still is a God of grace and we must open up that spigot afresh and begin to give to those that are even hostile towards us or towards our ideology, towards the things we think or towards the things that we believe they don't understand. Oh, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look at Jesus' response to those that crucified him. And you can better understand what haplotes looks like in the flesh. It's Jesus. We look like Jesus. There were times when he spoke, and there was times when he reprimanded. There was times when he rebuked, but there was times when he was silent as a lamb unto slaughter. And he was berated. He was mocked. Though he was God, he took a low position. Though you are a child of God, that you're willing to take a low position and pray and intercede even for those that are harsh against you. It says respond to them in gentleness. You know that that's not natural for us? Your pride is such that when someone challenges what you believe and calls it stupidity, what's your natural thing? To respond and prove them wrong. You see, arguing, when you stand for something that is even politically incorrect, even in agreement with Scripture, but is not the center, then what happens is you get identified with that, and that becomes a barrier for your audience from hearing about Jesus. Don't let your political views, your social views, hinder people from hearing the life of Jesus. I'm not saying you shouldn't have them. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a brain and you shouldn't think through what you believe and you shouldn't be attuned to some of the dynamics that are swirling about us in this culture. I'm saying don't let any of those things take your gaze off of what matters most. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So imagine if that's all we had. You've heard it said, haven't you guys, that you should love your neighbor. Love the guy that, you know, wants to hang out with you on your doctrinal issues or in your societal issues, your political issues. Love them, but hate those other guys. Look what Jesus says here. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do, you not, even, do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in this context, that perfect behavior is marked by loving those who hate you. Well, we have a troop of people in our country that are showing their true colors right now. They are embarrassed by where our country is now going. 
they are so upset that they do extreme volatile things. Some of the things, the spewing that is taking place, but what it's showing is that they do not like a direction that will at all include something that is derived from the Bible as opposed to something that is derived for the benefit of man's flesh. We are living in a time where the dividing lines are not property-driven. They are in the realm of the inner man, in the way we think, in the way we live. We as Christians cannot just side against the evil people. We side against evil, but not against the evil people. To them, we are the hope because we carry the gospel message that will set them free from the bondage that they are finding in their outrage. There are people out there right now in this world, in this country, that are anxious and fearful of where this country is going. And they're having trouble sleeping at night. They are struggling with bitterness and resentment, and they actually are wishing death and murder on people. The devil is consuming their life. They don't understand where it comes from, and they don't understand why their thoughts are so dark, and they're scared. And guess what? Your hatred of them is not going to help them. But your love for them, to recognize, you see, we can be struck in one cheek, and we can with joy turn to them the other also. But they, when they are struck on one cheek, have no capacity within to respond the way we as Christians are called to respond. They can't do it. They don't know how. So we shouldn't expect that. What do they need? They need Jesus. And you have him. So as a result, I want us to reset the system in our thinking and don't follow the bait. I'm not saying you shouldn't get excited about certain things that are favorable towards a biblical framework. It's great. But don't put your hope in that. Let's put our hope in Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.